0: Hello and welcome to episode 34 of Additive Insight. I'm Head of Content at TCT, Daniel O'Connor, and today I am joined by...
1: Laura Griffiths, Deputy Group Editor.
0: And...
2: Sam Davis,
1: Assistant Editor.
0: For this episode, we've got the gang back together to talk about all of the additives going on as the year hits its pre-summer hive of activity. So, let's kick things off with places we've been recently, things we've seen in the past month or so. And I want to start with you, Sam, on your trip to Gothenburg, which... By the way, you described as meh to me, as in the geography and the place, which I wasn't happy about.
2: So that was... So the reason for that message was because I had had maybe an hour or two free time and I just walked out into the city with no plan of where I was going. Um, So the second evening, it was upgraded to actually quite a nice place.
0: I mean, it looks nice.
2: It is is a nice place. Was it cold? Um, It was... Mm, chilly it wasn't bad it wasn't it was fine
0: well i'm sure we will continue on with our theme of TripAdvisor when i get on to my next thing but uh carry on with your additive <laughs> okay. manufacturing what was the reason you were there so i was
2: there to see arkham who had opened um their new center of excellence in maybe the late summer of 2019 um this was the first time they'd got the press there um to have a tour of the facility um and i think the kind of the thing to take away from it is that Arkham is really enjoying being a subsidiary. Um, they were saying that for nearly twenty years they were, um, they felt like a startup delivering what was a unique and young technology that still needed refining and improving. Basically, delivering that to market on its own on their own, um, and now they're part of this multinational conglomerate um, with a thousand five hundred R and D. People to, to talk to. um 20 of those in that facility for context. Um, they've got deep knowledge on how an industrial company should look um, and that already used the technology, um, EBM technology, by number of its businesses, Avio Aero. And that's probably where the highlight of the visit comes from. Um, as listeners might know, in January Boeing successfully flew two G9X engines which had something like 250 turbine blades on them each, which were 3D printed with EBM. Um, That flew on Boeing 77X aircraft. Um, The material used for those blades is titanium aluminide, which was actually originally a GE material um, that they patented when that expired. Avio got hold of the material and then GE eventually acquired them, um, and they'd been using EBM for four years at that point. and so that's perhaps why GE's ownership of Arcan is so important because the the aircraft that those engines were tested on in January, there's already been 300 pre-orders of those um, GE Aviation expects the first to be delivered next year, so there should be plenty of business going Arcan's way I think Avio installed 10 of the Spectra H machines which they manufactured on last year um, I don't know how they'll kind of manage um, all of those blades on those machines and how they'll, you know, whether they'll scale or whether they'll just kind of spread it out. Um, but the Archon team were also talking about how beneficial it was um, to have a clearer scope of what their customer is doing. Um, the, the management team are was saying how their relationship with GEA vision goes beyond a conventional supplier customer relationship. Um, they also said 95% of their focus within GE, so that's GE using, essentially, GE additive machines now, in-house for their own needs is 95%, that despite medical being one of RCAM's big target markets, GE obviously have a healthcare division, um, and the big change there is that everything is now under one roof, um, you went to contact laser um, in the autumn, who've done a similar thing, I think on a bigger scale, RCAM maybe had three or four facilities throughout Gothenburg now everyone's under the same roof um there's cross collaboration going on um there's somewhere because you don't have their own desk they have to sit somewhere else each day um hot desking for hot metal yeah including top management so uh carl Lund-Blong, who's the general manager there he he was saying that he has to find somewhere to sit every day um i quite like the sound of that actually he likes the sound of that um but i think it took quite a bit of adjusting for some of the staff they were saying. Um, they also have lean manufacturing implemented now, which has come from the very top down from GE CEO. Um, and now top management spends an hour on the shop floor three times a week, um, figuring out what the workers on that shop floor need. Um, and then other things that come from the top down is going to be automation. So Jason Oliver was talking about, who's the CEO of G Additive, about how. Um, things like powder removal and powder handling, both RCAM and contact layers have used powder so they can now knowledge share, whereas previously why would they have done that? They're not necessarily competitors but they're not partners, Um, so things like that will will be going on Um, and I think every one of the RCAM um, employees who were put forward for interviews would repeat the phrase which was attributed to Isaac, who's the the head of R&D, that it's nice to have an industrial owner. So I guess we'll see what exactly comes in, in
0: the next few years. It's interesting that you said that they are very much enjoying being a subsidiary mm. because that felt like exactly the same thing when I went to see the Concept Laser facility in Lichtenfels. It have not been to Concept Laser in Lichtenfels previously. It mm-hmm. felt like just going to a bigger version of that. It didn't feel like going to see yeah. GE and I suppose. The way that they are Running the two different modalities is—they are very different technologies. Mm. Um, I discovered when I was talking to Wayland that e-beam is a lot more—it has a lot of differences from laser. Although we all think of powder bed fusion technologies, yeah. the two for the yeah. two technologies are radically different. So it is interesting to see that they're both running both as almost separate, yeah, saying, separate entities. They were saying that
2: they joked that it wasn't a hostile takeover; it wasn't you know people coming down on ropes in ropes and black suits. Yeah. Um, but also that. The so in in the case of implementing lean it was just kind of tips. It wasn't this is how you're doing it. Yeah. It was kind of here's a rough design layout, here's what we'd recommend, this ventilation system, whatever. It wasn't a kind of um do everything our way. It was, you know, kind of here's what we suggest, you go away and do it. Um and they, they all seem pretty happy in that kind of owner um subsidiary relationship.
0: Also, one of the things that you mentioned as well about um, the way that they're implementing automation. Yeah. Um, At the conference that I was at, that I will move on to shortly, Um, one of the delegates there was talking about how a lot of these OEMs talk a lot about automation, Mm. but it seems like they are talking for automation. And that certainly was the case when you were talking about it then to improve throughput. Mm -hmm. Um, I do wonder and so did the uh, delegates at the time, how much people will need to start implementing it into the front end to making it u- to make the use of the machine earlier. As this delegate particularly put it, it's annoying that you still need a PhD sometimes to operate these metal technologies. So mm. it'd be interesting to see, okay, we improve throughput, but how are we going to bridge that skills yeah. gap?
2: I guess there's a thing to negotiate where a lot of companies have their, have kind of automation already, yeah. you know, ticking along in their facilities and others don't. I don't know how that all works in terms of installing something that is automation ready, um, and how it's then accessible to everyone.
0: Well, moving on to the conference that I went to in the past two weeks, both Laura and I have been to additive manufacturing aerospace conferences. Um, mine was the additive manufacturing for aerospace and space conference in the Vox center at the NEC in Birmingham. So familiar surroundings for us, although, uh, I was quite late booking my hotel, and um, I ended up booking somewhere called the Arden. I don't care. I'm saying it. For starters, on the hotel website... Are you really
1: giving a hotel review? I'm doing a
0: hotel review. Sam's done his trip advisor review in Gothenburg, <laughs> so I'm doing mine of um, a hotel near the NEC. And, you know, this is a tip for any of the listeners who are planning to come to TCT360, all to of you. you? <laughs> uh, do not stay at the Arden. And I'll tell you why. Because... On the hotel website, it says that it's a five to ten minute walk to the NEC. Perhaps if you are willing to dart across train tracks, that might be true. It's not. It took me 25 minutes in the rain without a coat to walk to the uh, conference centre. Anyway, book your hotels early for TCT360 is my top tip. But the, for the conference itself, um, it kicked off with a talk from... Uh, Material Solutions and uh, Marcus Seibold of the VP of Additive Manufacturing for Siemens Oil and Gas. But I think very much the star attraction of the morning was Melissa Orm, who's the VP of AM for Boeing. Uh, her talk set the tone for the, the main theme throughout the week, which throughout the two days, uh, which was that of qualification. Uh, the likes of Stephen Cat of Talas and Andy Schofield of BA Systems, both pleading the need to create standards together and I know we're all bored about standards but to create standards together so that they can be disseminated down to the supply chain supply chain was the main theme basically of the whole conversation was that we need to help supply chain understand what they can print and to give to aerospace because at the moment when you think about it all of Boeing and Airbus all of those applications we see are coming out of those people whereas they're not getting much out of the supply chain.
1: There was so much of that at the conference that, that I went to as well and even actually one I went to um, the week before in the UK which was just like a kind of an introductory event to additive to but a lot of people in the audience were from aerospace and it was just standards and just how there's kind of there's no one clear path for people, there's no one route for people to follow, people are doing their own kind of certification behind closed doors and then that's not getting passed down. And as you've just sort of said, people are not saying come in and find out what we actually want, what we actually need, That like the supply chain needs to come in and find out We're a little bit more about this rather than us just doing it by ourselves and assuming that it's going to work in the end. So I'll carry on about that later on, but well, it was a, a lingering theme.
0: Stephen Cat from Talas, he was saying, he was showing during his talk this like a uh, concept that they have, which is basically sharing all of their data with the supply chain and with the materials manufacturers, but you know. They can they, they're they going to share the stuff that is what they call business as usual so you know for prototypes or for um jigs and fixtures and tooling and things like that for these non-critical things it's basically can we just do them now rather than talking about it let's do them he used the example actually of a uh a coat hook on the back of one of the uh, airplane seats he's saying Does, do we really need to sit? And qualify that as it was if it was a flight critical part
1: yeah there was a similar thing at, at this event actually and it was just saying can we not just adopt a common sense approach to that kind of stuff do we have to overcomplicate things because it's already complicated enough as it is and, you, and i think it was the hook example you just don't need to worry yourself no. and stuff like that
0: and qualification of parts is one thing but the qualification of machines is something that i have never really delved into mm-hmm. um Melissa Orm of Boeing mentioned that at Boeing, once a machine is qualified, they take it off the grid to prevent from software updates, because a software update means that you have to re-qualify a machine. And Stephen Kat said that once that re-qualifying a machine in many cases is more costly than creating a lost tool, which you know is something we always talk about Addison a being great at, but if you've got to re-qualify a machine for that case, then that's more costly and more time consuming than just doing the tool.
2: I was going to ask how long that took just to get a machine qualified again.
0: Well, a great deal of the people that were there, so BAE Systems and Boeing and Airbus and Leonardo Helicopters, Mm. showed that it's a huge part of the cost is qualifying the machines. And I suppose one of the things Steve mentioned as well is that we are a fast-paced industry and we do see new machine iterations all the time. Mm. But if machines go into obsolescence and they've got a part that's printed on, say, uh, an, an old FDM machine that they're printing that they have a qualification for, and then that machine goes into obsolescence and they can't replace it, then they don't just have to buy a new machine. They have to buy a new machine and then requalify it all over again. Yeah. And yeah. Melissa mentioned, actually, that something I never really thought about is because, particularly the metal side, the part of a fusion, has been around for such a short period of time. We've got no idea about how long these machines last. Like, how long is a does the laser last on a machine like they're working the ones that they've put in operation are still working but she said that they've got CNC machines on the shop floor that have been qualified for 40 years mm-hmm. is additive expected to build be up to the same scratch it doesn't with a new machine a year you go to Formnext and you see hundreds of new machines it's hard to imagine how yeah, long they last
2: I think the problem with the kind of new machine every year is that the, the, the industry is still chasing new customers and new in, industries, so although there's kind of aerospace companies probably there waiting to, just for it all to settle down, Yeah. the vendors want to get into every market and get every customer in that market.
0: To, a couple of highlights from the conference itself, the talks. Uh, one in particular, Dr. David Rag of Leonardo Helicopters, who are based in Yeovil. Um, they do a lot of helicopters for the MOD, one of their main clients um he basically you know we see a lot of these 3d printing talks and as they're manufacturing talks with the concepts of what we're going to do in the future he just showed a host of applications that were very much what they call business as normal um and one of them was this exhaust and printed in titanium he said that even the traditional manufactured one isn't bespoke to each helicopter and the helicopters change that often and there's so little space on them that fitting the traditional ones is really difficult. So what they can do with additive now is basically fit, designed to fit in that purpose. And also uh, because it's there's been some part consolidation there, there's less places for it to potentially leak. The parties to so. That is a real like easy use case of where additive's really good. It's not particularly a flight like, critical component. It, it it's like on that you know on the fence of whether it is or whether it isn't. But it's one of the things where it just works mm. and they're very much about what works now. They're not, they're not Airbus and they're not Boeing. They're not, they're not trying to say like, what's a machine, like a plane's gonna look like a topologically optimized um, tree in the sky. Mm-hmm. They're just very much what is now. Mm-hmm. And that was quite refreshing to see uh, something like that. Um, and they were really open as well, sharing some of the stuff that they'd done. Uh, on the other side of the scale, Jason Gilmore of Airbus, Defense and Space, he talked last year tct show um the projects that they're doing are if you will excuse my pun literally out of this world uh one that really caught my eye was um a use of wire arc additive manufacturing which they have been developing alongside the university of Strathclyde's advanced forming research center in order to make these spacecraft spacecraft fuel propulsion tanks now we've seen the likes of Skiaki doing this before but this is very much for those like kind of um, smaller satellite operations and when you think about the tanks, the traditionally manufactured tanks, they're all manufactured to be the same size and they can be quite heavy, but depending on your um, your mission you might not need so much fuel, you might need to fill that up, so what they're able to do with this technology is make bespoke fuel tanks, and I would imagine I'm not overly up on unless it's the SpaceX Falcon Heavy, I don't think you're getting them fuel tanks back so it's just a one off print and and they're using wire art melding they're to make a near net shape and then machining that back and um, one of the things that was really interesting is that in 75 burst tests of this one in particular uh, the tank eventually burst at 1400 psi 1491 psi to be precise uh, and they're only expected to operate at 300 psi Um, and one thing that's really interesting there is that the researchers anticipated that the tank would burst along the layer lines. Uh, and in fact, it didn't. It burst in a typical manner for how other tanks would burst. Was, and they had the part there, actually, it's like fractured along this like step in motion, which is considered very traditional for how a fuel tank would burst. Mm-hmm. So they're moving ahead with that now. Um, and another thing that really caught my eye, Jason's presentation, was that all of that talk was about that really high-end powder bed fusion or... Uh, direct energy deposition and um, 3d printing and when we think of low-cost metal 3d printing we all automatically jump to desktop metal and markforge but that's still in the hundred thousand mark uh, airbus defense and space are currently testing out the feasibility of using the basf Ultrafuse filament printed on a fleet of sub five thousand dollar ultimakers um, they had some parts there it's just tool and jigs and fixtures but they look promising and so promising that um, Airbus, our Defence and Space are also thinking about um, using some of the leftover scalm alloy material, which is really expensive yeah. and obviously is waste material from um, powder bed fusion prints uh, and turning that waste material into filament. They're going to work with BASF and see how they do that. Uh, that could be potentially very interesting. Um, so in all that, conference was really useful in many of the th- areas that like we're pushing forward. But Laura, you've been in Hamburg at another air- airspace event this week.
1: Yes, I ha- I, mine was quite specific actually. So while you're talking about kind of the high end metal side, mine was all about um, aircraft interiors. And um, so it was the Red Cabin Aircraft, sorry, Red Cabin Aircraft Cabin Additive Manufacturing Conference. Um, so all about the inside of the a, of a cabin, the passenger experience, the cockpit, just all those kind of areas on um, on an aircraft. Um, and I don't whether to give a TripAdvisor review as well before I go into this.
0: Come on, let's t- tell me more about your commute.
1: Well, so, let well, so, <laughs> I see, I really like Hamburg, but I've only been when it's been really warm and sunny. Um, And I kind of hadn't anticipated the fact that once I got to the airport, I'd have to get the train and then two ferries to get to an aerospace conference. Sounds
0: like right up my street.
1: Um, And it was kind of up mine until I got on it and it was freezing cold, so that was fun. Um, also make sure you have uh, the right cash as well to pay for the ferry because I did not and I was very worried
0: you didn't actually clarify to me Mm -hmm. how you actually got on that ferry did you bunk on did you not pay
1: (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) I sat there with a 20 euro note my bank card like, the photo I had taken of the machine to show I had tried to pay on it, and it would not accept my notes, so, yeah.
0: Very for a, um excuse.
1: I, it was, but I, I paid on the way back, though, and I eventually got changed, so there you go. But it was actually it was quite nice, and on the way back, I really enjoyed the ferry, so, um, yeah, it was lots of modes of transport to get to and transport Conference. Um, so yeah, it was it was a really, really good event, and as I said, it was very, um, very specific, which was nice. Um, such a good bunch of people as well, just a, a mix of people that would deal with, um, the, the, they were engineers from Airbus, but then people that deal with just certification, service bureaus, just all these different um, types of people there. Um, and there was kind of, um, as you mentioned, they had kind of the out-of-this-world applications, but there was also very normal applications as well, which was, which was nice. Um, starting off with kind of more the out-of-this-world sort of stuff, there was um, Bernard uh, van der Raff, VP of Design, Engineering and Innovation at Etihad Aviation Group. and um, We spoke about the potential to 3D print 60% of a next-generation aircraft cabin by 2026. And that sounds like something that, you, first of all, you have to kind of think, do we have to? Like, is there a need <laughs> to do that? Um, and I suppose it also seems a bit like, nah, can't do that yet. But just the way you spoke about it, you you really believed him and almost wanted to just buy a ticket off him straight away because it genuinely seemed like something that is possible just from the applications he was talking about and just some of the images that they showed and of how they're working on that um so he was kind of he he was very much talking about the grand ambitions but was also grounded in reality because he kind of kept joining in on the conversations throughout the other presentations throughout the week and anytime people were talking about certification and things like that he was definitely talking about that with a more much more um airing more on the side of realism anyway so it wasn't all completely pie in the sky um ideas um, and another thing that was quite disappointed about that actually was um it was only referring to business class and first class planes. so guys we won't be we won't be enjoying the 3d <laughs> printed cabin anytime soon as my Ryanair flight will, will show
0: <laughs> when i was at paris air show last year actually Stratus had on their stand basically a an entire like um seat Oh, yeah. uh, and set up for a business class flight that was all three D printed and all of the parts. Well, did there? they yeah, probably should have mentioned that instead of Paris Air Show? But anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, and it was really impressive. And when I was looking at, and I was encouraged to sit on the seat and look at all of the little pipes and things that were printed. And I mean, is the stat on the Airbus? Is it the A three hundred and fifty that there are a thousand printed parts on that one? So it's not that pie in the sky to imagine that you could print a lot of the things in that cabin.
1: That's true. And they didn't say specifically whether it meant sixty percent of the total number of parts or whether it was sixty percent of the space. So I'm not too sure. Like, were yeah, like, what it, what that actually
0: specifically means Like, is it sixty percent of the tiny little clips
1: <laughs> that are uh, so c- cables together? <laughs> <laughs> um well there's this huge potential there anyway. But then talking more about kind of the the realistic side of things and what's happening now. Um, so, we had um, Anna Coste, who's the head of, of the AM's, AM Centre at Lufthansa Technic, who also co-hosted the event. Um, and she was talking about how they, uh, they're they using 3D printing for prototyping, tooling, but also end-use parts. And just some of the examples that um, that she was talking about were things for repair and things for just um, improving alternatives to, to current parts. So, um, one of them, for example, was um, an air grill in the cockpit, which is apparently prone to, to, to break it, it's kind of like a little crosshatch sort of thing so it can snap quite easily. Um, but how they redesigned and, and printed a version of that which is now much more durable um, and it's just, just a much better design. Um, and then in terms of alternatives, one I found interesting because it seems so so simple was, you know those um, the headphone jacks in, in your armrests and how they still got the two in from years ago when we used to get the free headsets on a plane and you'd plug both in and some people still take them. So. <laughs> um, but yeah, so um, she was talking about how many people are plugging their own headphones in and they plug it into the wrong socket and we're getting like molten headphones and we're uh, breaking the headphones because they just plug it into the wrong side. And so they just come up with a simple thing where they've literally just, just 3D printed this tiny little plug because, you know, they don't need they don't need millions of them, they just need they need a few. Print this little tiny plug, shove it in, and then people know not to bother putting the headphones in that socket. And it just saved them redesigning this whole setup and the armrest to just put a little plug in instead. That's such a simple idea, and I just thought that's that's such a good example of where it is actually really really useful for those low volume examples. What have you plugged your headphones in? A bit? Does
0: it need to be three D printed? That I think it's
1: more the low volume, so why it yeah, I suppose 3D so.
0: 3D I just, I mean, I do do it all the time, and it is a frustration on old planes that that that, that double socket is there. But I just was wondering whether that necessarily needs to be three D printed. It feels, but the the crosshatch um, the grill that you mentioned we were at was it Polymaker yeah, yeah. Uh, was that TTT Asia yeah last year last year um, and they were talking about the same thing weren't they that that is a common part that's always getting broke <laughs> and what I was amazed about from that conversation was that uh, if that is broke that plane is then grounded it, uh, grounded until it's be able to fix it oh, yeah. yeah. so is there anything at the conference to do with like that like almost like fixing on the fly or so when it's landed at those kind of like at the hubs at the airports
1: yeah so um funny enough so we had some workshop sessions and it was talking about applications that we can have now in five years time in 10 years time in 20 years time and um there was a talk of, of talk of doing that not necessarily that anybody is quickly printing a part now and just putting it on a plane it's more that you'd have like a couple of parts in an inventory, but not loads of them like you used to, and then you could just like kind of print like so. You still had some in the backlogs So Not really printing on the fly, but then some people had ideas about you know what we actually print it on the plane. And I mean, most people were thinking no, that's just that's just not going to mm. work. Um, but yeah, that the, there were discussions around that. I mean, because I think it was um it was Bernard from um, Etienne actually who was saying that in between the sea checks that they that they do and in between flights that. I think it said you can have five to ten percent of like damages or something on the customer face in fact. That's quite a lot really. And if you do have like say a an armrest or something, that's a seat that you can't let somebody sit in. It's a seat that 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 you can't sell. Um, and there was another really great talk from Felix um Hammerschmidt at Saturn. and they make aftermarket parts for aerospace. Um, and he said that they deal with around 3.5 million part numbers. For playing that is so much, and only five percent of those are planable. So that basically means that they can only predict that five percent are likely. You might even the one a few years time that these these are more likely to be prone to breakages. That leaves so much opportunity for the amount of parts that you could then just have in a digital inventory, and just you could just print off when you actually need them. And I just thought that was such a ridiculously high number, and such a low number of parts that are actually planable that there's quite a good opportunity there for additive manufacturing um, to be installed closer to the point
0: of need. The way you're talking about that makes me feel like you've never broken something on an aeroplane, have you not? No. Have no. you? Well. Oh, I've done it twice. I broke a tray table and I broke a seat belt, which granted it couldn't be 3D printed but I broke the, uh... basically I broke the slot with the seatbelt and they had to move me. I thought they were going to move me to business class, they didn't. So they can moved me work. to a slightly worse seat. I, mean, that's it. I didn't mean break. to break it. It shouldn't be breakable. <laughs> yeah, <they're upgraded. laughs> well, I feel like I should. You
2: be
0: <laughs> I mean, that seems like a good um, strategy for getting an upgrade to break things. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen someone be upgraded before because their screen wasn't working on their system and there was no available seats.
1: Well, see, I've had, I've had it a few times where the screen's been broken, but they've just sort of said... Did so, you break the screen? No, I didn't break the screen. I certainly didn't try and do it on purpose.
2: I was on a plane last year to... I think it was Rapid plus TCT where... They didn't have screens and they didn't have headphone jacks, it was that old.
1: Well, for old planes like that, apparently, according to Etihad, um, with using 3D printers, I think it's by 2030, they expect to be able to completely like retrofit, well sorry, actually just strip a plane of all the stuff that's in it and put all new stuff in in just 30 days, which is really, really fast. But yeah, so there is so there are so many different part examples as as I said. I mean, like ridiculous amounts of part numbers, and that's why it was interesting to hear from uh, Lufthansa about the, the um, specific application examples because I feel like we were used to seeing a lot of the same application examples from from companies, but it was I I'd never heard of a lot of these ones from um, from Love, Love But um, so someone in the audience um, actually asked them how they qualify their parts because they they said they've printed like like hundreds of, of different parts already. Um, and it turns out they have to certify them on a part-by-part basis, which uh, prompted someone to go, Jesus Christ, because obviously that sounds like an awful lot, um, which then moved the conversation um, onto certification, because as you said, it's it's such a bottleneck, it's something that people just um, constantly have questions about, because there's no clear path as to as, as to how um, these parts get certified, there are people um, working on their own definitions of certification and organisations like um, ASTM who are in uh, the last mag, um, who have got working on AM specific standards and so far it's at 25 that, that, that they've actually got. Um, but yeah, so it's also thinking about what kind of current standards are relevant to AM parts as well, you know, what, what should we use standards for forging, milling, what's the closest thing to it at the minute if we don't have specific standards relative manufacturing. Um, and there's also the thought that um, the technology seems to be changing so quickly that, what if in five years time, that's no longer relevant because we're using a different technology, Do you need to make certain cases again for a different type of metal 3D printing. Um, so there was also, um, which is something I think we've, we've talked about before, but there's also that kind of need to have a little bit of an um, educated risk taking, you know, do you just do you just do it and then just um, you know kind of, not really just see what happens, no one's saying stick a 3D on a commercial airline and just kind of cross your fingers and, and hope for the best. Um, but just kind of continuing to, to innovate rather than waiting around for standardisation to come first because you know pioneers are very good at kicking the doors open and getting things done but then you kind of need uh, standardisation so that everyone else can then jump in and, and, and do their bit as well. So yeah, it was a really, really um, good conference, uh, lots of um, lots of good conversation with people and it, it was just because of the, the, the really specific group of people in the room it, it was it was nice just to actually talk to people who were, who were actually using the technology and just find out what their concerns are and, and just where they're actually up to with this because you know it's all for a while talking about this 60 percent printed cabins and these um you know bionic bathrooms which is what somebody suggested don't know what a bathroom is meant to be um but you also need to um to understand what people are actually using it for now in order to get to that next bit so yeah
0: Sounds like we've got a lot to go on for Issue 3, which has got an aerospace focus this year. We
2: have
0: indeed, yes. Um, so that's the events that we've been to in the past couple of months. Uh, let's talk a little bit now about the um, space of the next two months. We've got the two biggest events in the US, AMOG and Rapid. Now, obviously, there's uh, the worldwide domination of the coronavirus news, um, about which there are plenty of questions about the entirety of the events industry worldwide. As it stands, both events are going ahead. Um, I will certainly be at both, and both Amug and the SMA have coronavirus updates on their website, which they will be updating regularly. Um, I'll be flying solo for Amug. We've put a highlight piece in the latest edition of our North American magazine. Uh, One of the things I'm particularly looking forward to, which is a little bit of a change, is uh, the talk from James Hobson, or as he's known on YouTube, The Hacksmith. Uh, It's something a little bit different, certainly away from aerospace and away from a medical... Uh, and all those industrial use cases of three D printing, but nevertheless, it's a good example, and it's not a, an example that should be underlooked. It's a mark. It's a huge market that kind of uh, arena. So I will be interested in uh, that talk at AMUG. Um, we'll all be going to Rapid Plus TCT, which runs from the nineteenth to the twenty third of April in the Anaheim Convention Center in California. Uh, during our weekly call to the SME. There is absolutely loads to be looking forward to at this event, both on the show floor in terms of what the exhibitors are bringing and the features that will be on the show floor. And as always, a an exceptional conference lineup. I
1: know we've had a lot of emails from about January already with people talking about what they're exhibiting at Rapid or CCT, so people are, people are very much excited about what they're bringing to this year's show.
0: Well, one of the great focuses this year is uh, medical, and there's plenty of features on the show floor. That are falling under the what the SME are calling the medical additive manufacturing or M A M banner. Maybe MAM, we calling it MAM. If you're from Birmingham. If you're from Birmingham, yeah. Dr. Anthony Atala is keynote on day two and his talk on regenerative medicine, current concepts and changing trends. Uh, there's also a thought leadership panel being led by medical modelling's Andy Christensen. There's plenty of workshops and conferences are plenty um laura i think you're planning on speaking to amy alexander of mayo clinic in the coming weeks to find out more um, for our healthcare feature in the rapid plus tct preview if you go onto the s yes, the rapid3devent.com website uh, you will be able to see there's a download for the medical additive manufacturing showcase and it'll just tell you about all of the amazing things that are going on on the show floor um as I mentioned earlier, particularly I am interested in the uh, the keynote from Dr. Anthony and Atala because we hear, you know, a lot when we see about medical three D printing is often about this medical modelling, which is clearly fantastic. But um, this is going to be talking about, you know, the patients with diseased or injured organs and how they could be treat, theoretically treated theoretically treated with regenerative medicine. Okay. Um, so. That's one thing I'm particularly looking forward to. Laura, something that you're looking forward to is
1: well, when I was um, having a look through, there's there's actually a lot of stuff that's quite interesting to see with sort of a hybrid manufacturing. To be honest. and there was one talk which uh, was talking about how we can use additive manufacturing as kind of a, a, a pathway to help people understand how additive um, could actually come into play. But the talk I'm looking forward to the most um, is a panel discussion, because we all like a panel discussion, um, around the business and economic considerations for additive manufacturing. So it's a, a panel of um, industrial manufacturers discussing the production readiness of additive manufacturing, which is... Um, you know, such such a huge topic, and the, the speakers here are Ted Anderson, um, Industri- industrialisation leader at GE additive, um, Nick Mueller, director of Boeing additive manufacturing intelligence center, and also Stacy Delvecchio, um, Stacy a consultant. She was originally with, with Caterpillar. We've interviewed Stacy, and of course, had run by our own panel sessions um in the past. Um, so yeah, the panel session is going to cover um the challenges um. And successes also of large-scale manufacturers working to implement additive manufacturing into their businesses. And um, so, of course, these panellists are from uh, like quite a variety of, of, of business sectors, but they're also great examples of businesses that have actually implemented additive successfully. So I think it'd be good for um, people that are both new to additive and also people that are working out how to take that next step. Maybe they've just implemented additive in kind of a small way at the minute, but looking out to make a real business case for it. I think it'd be a, a really useful talk. So uh, that's happening on April um, 21st, uh, 1115.
0: Rapid is also celebrating its uh, 30th year this year. So mm-hmm. there's a great, a lot of talks that have got people that have been in the industry a long time, like those those mentioned on your panel session. And also there's a great emphasis on, okay, we've been here for 30 years what have we achieved, but what's the future look like? And I know who your talk is, a, a, your highlight is from, Sam, that's certainly a future-looking
2: highlight. Mm-hmm. So um, Jordan Noon, the co-founder and CTO of Relativity Space, will be doing the keynote on Tuesday morning, April 21st. Um, his talk is titled Getting Into the Future Faster with Metal 3D Printing for Space Launch. Um, I spoke to Jordan, Maybe this time last year, um, for last year's aerospace feature, um, which looked at um, how um, the private companies involved with kind of um, manufacturing rockets um, are implementing three D printing and how to move from kind of national agencies to the private sector and all the funding they're getting, um, and relativity. Um, Been in the news recently. They've just moved into a new facility in California. Uh, at some point last year, they closed um, a Series C funding round of one hundred and forty million dollars, um, and it seems like it's beginning to step up its production efforts. So it's Teron One rocket, um, which um, I can't remember the exact percentage, but some I put of of nine percent of which will be three D printed. Um, I think it's designed to include a thousand parts rather than. Can't remember if it was ten thousand or hundred thousand something, much larger. Um, and its a on engines have fewer than hundred assembled pieces, um, and the reason behind their um, their kind of implementation of three D printing is to streamline the design of rockets and their supply chains. The fewer the fewer number of parts, the fewer number of people who need to assemble those parts. Um, then the quicker they'll get through, if you think back to, you know, the 70s and 80s, it would take an awful long time to build a rocket, get it all certified, get it up in the air. Um, they want to cut that right down and get these things into orbit in the next few years. Um, and um, the 3D printing technology they use um, is a system called Stargate, <clears throat> which is an arc welding uh, system, has three robotic arms, one of which is a depositioner, two are post-processing, um, and I think the build volume is 9 times 15 feet and they're building things like propellant tanks and structural components and then they have smaller applications which they outsource which are produced with GMLS.
0: They're an amazing story that as a company aren't they, there are a couple of guys coming out of SpaceX and Blue Origin I believe. So you,
2: Jordan came from SpaceX, um, worked with 3D printing on the Super Draco engine um, and I think five years ago yeah, um, yep. Tin Alice who's the CEO. Yeah.
0: So that's the CTO and CEO coming out of mm-hmm. um, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos's, um incubators, let's say. Yeah. Space, obviously, is a exciting area for everyone. And one of the other areas that is particularly interesting for 3D printing at the moment is um, sustainability. Rapid has a bit of a focus on sustainability this year. There is a uh, sustainability thought leadership panel session called the Additive Manufacturing and Green Manufacturing, a crucial partnership uh, panel session, which features Sherry Handel, Bruce Bradshaw, Brian Neff, Edwin Rezebo, and Marie Langer, who of course, Laura, you spoke to last week, the CEO of EOS.
1: Yeah, I did. And, um, sustainability is a massive focus for uh, Marie now as, as leader of, of EOS. And um, yeah, she was talking about how um, she thinks it's really important to communicate the sustainable advantages of additive manufacturing over commercial technologies as a kind of a key driver to get people to adopt. So that's thing, things like, you know, as we know, better part design to reduce weight, which can also help with the, you know, Especially over a part's lifetime, say it's something that's used in in aerospace, as we mentioned, for example, you know, reduced weight is it is a massive factor in that, and um, but also just inventory waste reduction, um, you know, better material resources, that kind of stuff. Looking into biodegradable materials, and um, even just reducing energy waste in their machines internally as well. So there's lots of different initiatives that, that they're working on. So i you know, very interested to hear more what Marie has to say about that, particularly with um, one of the other speakers you mentioned there. Sherry Handel, who was, is, is of course, has just been um, announced as one of the execs on a new kind of um green additive manufacturing um, organisation. So I think just the fact that something like that has been established, it does show that like people are putting such an emphasis on sustainability with editor manufacturing because it is, it is one of those things that we kind of think of AM as inherently sustainable, and for the most part, it is. But then there are certain things you do have to think about. Like I remember you talked about um, SLS powders last year and just how much of that actually goes to waste and some of the issues with that. So I think it's going to be important to have people highlighting also the the, the disadvantages too, and just looking at how we can fix
0: that. I think, if anything, I a little bit disagree that it's inherently good mm. for the uh, well, uh, sustainable. We, we present that it's I sustainable. I was going to say, I think the marketing messages have presented that it's yeah. sustainable. I think I remember, um, I remember one of the first talks I ever saw from... Uh, Jeremy Pullen, who's now who's on the TCT expert advisory board, he mentioned that um, at the time we were all talking about how PLA was this great biodegradable material. But he said that what people don't realise is that although yes it is biodegradable and it is made from um, a natural source, you still have to go through a specific composting. Method to make that biodegradable. It's not just biodegradable from itself. And anybody who's got a PLA part sitting on their shelf from a long time will see that it's not exactly biodegradable. It's still it's still there. Um, And the industry itself generates incredible amounts of waste Mm -hmm. that I don't think you know. Certainly in SLS, we've started to see that being um, that being addressed at the moment. And I think one of the other. Members of the panel session is uh, Bruce Bradshaw, who's CMO at 6K. Now, 6K are talking about how their technology um, in creating metal powders is a lot more sustainable because they can take scrap materials from machining and then turn that into a powder for additive right. manufacturing. So it's good that before additive manufacturing has taken off, we are really addressing those points because I think if it have, if it have exploded as it is, then... There is a lot of things that are very wasteful within the industry, but it's nice to see that we are addressing it early, yeah. whereas traditional technologies have just not had the, the possibility to do that. And certainly the green agenda these days is set is much more forefront in people's minds, so it's good that we've got something like this. Mm-hmm. I, I think that concludes everything that we've got to say for this issue. We've gone up to over 40 minutes now of this podcast, and I know people don't want to hear from us that much, but we are, in the coming weeks, going to keep these up, and we have a... Uh, We have various conversations. I'm hoping to have a uh, conversation with Jordan Noon from uh, Relativity Space, and we will have a, a very interesting method of delivery of one of the usual talks at Rapid coming up in podcast format. So stay tuned for that. Otherwise, thank you very much for listening, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll speak to you soon.